Welcome to the Help for Wounded Spirits. This podcast exists to reach those wounded and suffering through life's trials. And now your hosts, Dr. Doug Carriger and Mrs. Stephanie Wesco. with you folks. We continue on with our special sermons and meetings from around the country. And uh, we want to go ahead and play a sermon right now from Camp Joy. We think it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, we look forward to when we'll all be back together again. I believe it'll be Thursday of this week. We'll be coming to you live from Bemidji, Minnesota. So thanks for hanging with us. I believe this sermon will be a blessing to you. And as we continue on to work against all things PTSD and all those types of things, that uh, it's just an honor to have you folks with us. We want want you to know that we pray for you every single day. May God bless you, my brethren. Here we go. And, uh, but anyway, so as it comes time to leave, one of the first things you've got to do is you start this out-processing thing. And part of the out-processing thing, especially once you've been in a ton of years, is one of the first things you do is have to go to medical. And so when you go to medical, you get a brief, and they put you in a room about half the size with everybody who's getting out, retiring, medical discharge, whatever the case may be. You know, about half their size, they have a bunch of people in there and they come up and they, they hand you these three by five cards and they say, fill out this card with everything that's been wrong with you since you joined the Army. And they gave me like one three by five card, a one five by eight card. And of course, I got eight more or something like that. And that's all I could remember. You know, 26 years is a long time. I mean, face smash, broken neck, five plung. I mean, there's some stuff. You're filling out a piece of paper. You want to make sure you don't miss any of this. They want to do a records check, and then they do the physical. So one of the first things they did with me is I've had ringing in my left ear uh, since about 1999, and every time I answer the phone, no one's there. I mean, it's just, it rings all the time. All the time ringing, all the time. Uh, the, in my left ear, the right one joins in a little bit, but it's at a lower orchestra level. It's, it's one I can deal with a little bit better, but they ring all the time. And so I told them, I said, listen, I said, uh, and Debbie's always telling me I had select hearing. And uh, I don't know if any of you ever heard that before. But I've heard that since 1983. You know, you have select hearing. And she would try things just to prove her theory. You know, it's like, honey, empty the garbage. Or, honey, let's play kissy face. And because of the syllable breakdown, some things I couldn't hear as good. Others I could hear better, you know? <laughs> and, and so anyway, um, so I went to the doctor, and the doctor says, let's start with a hearing test. And like all things the Army does, they pull a trailer truck up to the outside of the hospital. And uh, so I went to the outside of the hospital, and you go in to get your hearing test. I got all these papers. They sent me to it. Uh, so the doctor says, one of the things that you'll enjoy is the doctor says to me, how do you feel spiritually and stuff? And I said, man, I'm glad you asked. I said, since I've been in the Army, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I've never felt better. I know where I'm going. He sent me to the psychiatrist. <laughs> That, that's a true story. But anyway, they sent me to this truck out, outside of the uh, uh, outside of the Heidelberg Army Hospital. And I get in the truck, and there's two of us. They put a private and I right in the back. This private just come back from Afghanistan. Him and I, and there's like a curtain in between us. You can see through it a little bit. And we're sitting there, and they put these Bose headphones on, and all that does is make the ringing in my ears even more intense, you know? 
they put these boats and they give you this button and the instructions are they're talking to you through the headphones. So they're somewhere in this trailer truck and they're like, Sergeant Major, private. Here's what's going on today. We're going to be sending noises that sound like this. And I'm like, I don't hear anything, you know, or, or whatever. But anyway, you got this button to push. And so this private and I are back there and I'm looking over at this private. He's going like this, you know. I can see him through the curtain. You get messed up when you're in Army. He's like, I'm going to scuff that guy up. You know, I'm just sitting there wasting all the Army's money, pushing the button and, and doing all those things, making believe he's hearing things. Well, once in a while, I'd hear a beep, uh, bah, and I don't hear high pitch. That's a true story. No matter what you want to say, Debbie, it's I, soprano. I don't hear the high pitch stuff. That's why she's got a little bit louder and a little bit deeper with her voice over the years, so I can hear her better. But anyway, um, so I took the hearing test, and as soon as the, I didn't even know the hearing test was over because my ears rang so much. So the door that they came through to the back of this smaller trailer truck kind of thing. They open it up and it's the doctor. He looks at he says to the private, You're great, man. You can tell. And he looks at me, and I'll never forget this. He says, He said, You're all messed up, man. He says, You have at least 35% hearing loss in both ears. And I felt good about that for a minute. For like for like a minute, I'm like, I can bring this home to Debbie and say, it's you. It's not me, you know? Isn't that terrible? That's the way we think of our spouses sometimes. But anyway, so I said, can I get a copy of that here? Test, you know? And he ran one off for me. And I told him, I said, uh, I said, doctor, I said, I think my wife has hearing loss too. And uh, I said, is there any way I can check her without bringing her in? Because she wasn't in the army anymore. And this is what he said. He said, go home. And he says, get behind her and 20 feet behind her and talk to her in a normal voice. If she can hear you, her hearing is fine. So I went home that day, and our, our apartment just went straight up. You know, we had this four-level uh, kind of townhouse, but it was small. It was German. You know, the Army rented it for us. And, and so I could see the kids were sitting there. We actually had a nanny from Russia, remember? And she always used to yell at me and stuff. So once everything calmed down, because she's like, no, Douglas, I'm not doing that. Uh, Tatiana. But anyway, so Tatiana would yell at me. The kids were making believe they were doing so. They made believe all the way through college. I'm telling you, these kids, I don't know how they graduated. I don't, when Doug graduated with his master's degree, he was first in his class at Clemson, and I still didn't believe it. I thought he knew something, because I've never seen that kid work my entire life. Debbie may have. I've never seen him stress or work or anything like that. He wore this big, like, shield, like he was a, a ninja warrior or something that gave him at Clemson. And I'm like, my kid? But anyway, so they're making believe they're doing, they're wearing headphones, watching TV, and doing homework at the same time. And Debbie's out in the kitchen, and she's actually doing something, cooking and stuff. So I got 20 feet behind her, and the kids are looking at me kind of strange, and, and I, I even paced it out. I got 20 feet behind her, and I said, hi, honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? And she didn't say anything. And I knew her hearing was as messed up as mine. I said, man, she's messed up too, you know? So then I went halfway to her. I got about 10 feet from her, and I said, hi, honey, I'm home. What's for supper for the second time, you know? And she didn't say a word. And I look at the kids, and they're like, Dad, what are you doing? Or something like that. And uh, so finally, I, I walk out in the kitchen, and I put my arm around Debbie, and I said, hi, baby, I'm home. What's for supper? And she said, for the third time, hamburger. So uh, anyway, open your Bibles if you would tonight. Most of that story is true. I didn't change any of it to protect the innocent, but that hearing test was 35% off. And Debbie and I have had fun with the hearing test. And I, I just want to admit to something I Debbie showed me two bruises that she has on her body as well. So I'm not the only one that was hurt in the episode that occurred on Sunday morning. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, 
So I felt like I should tell you that right now. Because she's like, oh! And I'm like, okay, baby, I'm sorry. And uh, you start comparing bruisers. But here we are. We're in the book of 1 John. They're in chapter 5, 13. I want to share uh, just a quick testimony with you tonight. Many of you asked me to explain how I got PTSD and ended up where I'm at. So I'm doing that. And uh, this is going out to our uh, podcast world. It's been a long time since I did something like this to the podcast world. And, and it says in, in 1 John 5, 13, it says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. And it's such a great sentence there, that you can know you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us tonight. And Lord, we know that uh, we're sitting in a room of saved people. And, and Lord, if there's somebody who doesn't have that right, we pray that this day we beg you, God, that this day they'd get that right and we'd be quick give you the honor and glory. You alone can save. You alone can change life. You alone can change our hearts and help us and soothe us and, and uh, uh, take away our fears, take away our hurts, take away our pain, we pray tonight, Lord, and let us focus on your word. And Lord, if there's a word on my lips or if there's something in my vocabulary that would not bring honor and glory to you, Lord, I pray that you would strike that. We love you, Lord. We need you in Christ's name. Amen. So in my life, I never knew. So how many of you guys grew up Catholics? Do we got any Catholics around here? So Debbie, yeah. So in the Northeast, that was kind of the gig. You know, that's what everybody did. And uh, so I was born and raised as a Roman Catholic. I was the youngest of a bunch of Catholic kids. We'd get our brush cut on Saturday. We'd go and make confession. And for those of you who don't understand what confession is, we would go to the church and they had these little booths. And you would go into the church and they had these booths and they were protected by like this black piece of speaker material or something that was hanging there, and you could see the priest through there, but you really, you know, I guess it was some kind of uh, idea that you wouldn't see him and he wouldn't see you, but you would go in there and, and you would make confession. You would go in and confess of every sin you had. Imagine having to do that. And I knew Catholic people. My aunt, who's still alive, my Aunt Madeline, before we moved down south, they were aunts. But my Aunt Madeline, who's still alive up in Springfield, Westfield, Massachusetts, carries a book with her. And every time she goes and sins or something, she writes it in the book. So she, she goes to confession every week. She goes to mass every single day. And uh, she pulls out that book. So that was our life. And I can remember our, my father was abusive. I, I don't remember a ton of that. I remember he dropped me off at school, and I never saw him again. Three years later, I saw him again. And, uh, and so there was a lot of things that occurred during that time. And so if you can imagine, you leave five kids. There's a few foster kids. There's people all around. you got a mom working a couple jobs, uh, kids trying to get by. And, and, I mean, it was just a different life, you know. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of us, and, uh, uh, and, my, and my father deserted us. And back then, you just couldn't find people. You know, you didn't go out on Facebook or look up a name or something like that. And finally, the state police found him after a few years, and he supported us a little bit and stuff. But our life was just filled with Catholicism. Uh, my stepdad came along, I think, four years uh, after he left, and uh, and it, it was just it, it was just a different life, you know. And, and when you go to mass, my mother was a nun. I should give you that background on my thing. So mom had went through uh, Putnam Catholic Academy. She went to Yale University. Was going to a convent across the street, and uh, uh, a priest tried to assault her or something, and mom just beat the snot out of him and got thrown out of the convent. And everybody in my family are Amazon people, so I'm the youngest. I was the youngest grandkid, the youngest kid, 
and and the smallest person in our family, I think, was Deborah, what, six feet tall? Well, yeah, Debbie, the person I married, but I'm talking people that were uh, in, in the immediate family. I mean, my sister could beat up people as good. You know, by the time I was 14, I had to be about 15 years old before I could beat up people as well as my sister, Judy. She used to, she used to take people out all the time. You mess with my brother, wow. Am I lying? Judy's still got issues. She's the one I was telling you about that I believe might be a spawn of the devil. But anyway, um, yeah, it was hard. But then my older sister, Deborah, and so like many families, you know, my older sister, Deborah, was in charge of me. Everybody was in charge of somebody until you hit 12 years old. You know, it's like, this is your kid till you're 12 years old. So Deborah, uh, I mean, and, and she was pretty, she was pretty laid back. The only problem was she smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. And she drank tab all the time. Anyway, that has nothing to do with my Christian testimony. But that'll mess you up when you're a kid, when you're in a room. It's just, she's always, everywhere we went, that, that woman had a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. But um, I can remember trying to figure out what was going on, making a first communion, confirmation, going through the steps, Easter's, going to play bingo, lighting candles when people die. I remember uh, seeing my grandparents uh, laying in a casket, and, and everybody there, you know, I was lighting as many candles. You know, I, was, I did lawns for a living. I, I cleaned a bar for a living for a few years until I turned 16. The bar was right across the street from our house. And I can remember taking every dime I had and just buying, because we got to remember what we believe at that time. The belief was we would go to this place called Purgatory, and your family and friends were responsible to pray you out. Unless you were considered a saint by your church or something, you went to purgatory, you went to this halfway place, and people would pray you out of there. And it was all different back then. And the services, a lot of them were in Latin back then, and you really didn't know what was going on. And I can remember, so I went in the Army at 17 years old, like I was telling you guys, that was real confusing. So at first, you really, you know, religion in the Army was this, you got to go to chapel on Sundays. And if you didn't go to chapel, so, I mean, back then, the drill sergeants were like, Listen, you're all going to hell. Pick a service you want to, or we're making you scrub the floor with toothbrushes. So I'd go to the Catholic service and the Protestant service. I'd go to whatever services I could. I would have went to the Jewish service if I could have found a way to pull that off because you're in basic training AIT. I mean, they let you. Those are the few places they don't abuse you. And, you know, you would go to the chapel in the Army, and they'd throw you cookies and stuff. And, you know, old people would be slipping you can't. I mean, you'd go back to the barracks and be like, ah, you'd be all wound up and, and, uh, but I remember going to services and I was so confused. I was so, uh, I don't know, I, I just didn't know God. And, uh, and, and, and so to make this long story even shorter, the years went by. I met Debbie, we got married. It was never really, uh, I was in the process. We met, we, we worked together. I was interviewing a couple people to be the next girlfriend in my life because I wanted to be serious about it. So I knew these three girls. So. And it's nothing perverted or anything like that. I just told them I'm going to go out with one of you. You know, so it wasn't like some weird thing you'd see on TV or read about in a book or anything. I just went to these three girls and I said, listen, one of you. And because I was hoping that two would bail, you know, that somehow they'd work it out between themselves, you know. So I went to them because we were all friends and I set them all down. And I said, listen, I said, I said, I've made a decision that I'm going out with one of you. And I haven't decided, I, I said, there's really a lot going on. You know, like, you're the prettiest, you're the smartest, and you've got a really good job, and you're nice to me. You know, and so I was trying to sort it out through those kind of things, you know. And so one girl was smart enough, she bailed. 
you know, she immediately bailed. She's like, I'm not having any part of this. You don't want to go out with me. You either pick me now, Doug. What she, this is what she said. Doug Carragher, you pick me right now or I'm going, you're never going to have another chance. And I said, I'm really going to miss you. So then I went back to the other two. And, uh, and, and, and I was looking. And the strangest thing occurred that ever occurred in my life. They're like, okay, let us know when you make a decision. They were over there talking. And so I'm telling my buddy, I said, it's coming down. One of them is going to choose me right now. I said, they're going to flip a coin or something. I said, I'm feeling really good about this. But see, God had another plan and had Debbie for me. And, and these two said the strangest thing to me I ever heard. They said, okay, let us know when you pick one. And it was terrible for me because I was, I was spinning because I'm a friendly person. You know, I get along with everybody. I didn't know what to do. And my friend's girlfriend, Jean Goyette, was like, Jean was crazy, but she's like, Doug, this is abuse. You got to pick one. Flip a coin. And I'm like, let, and, and I said, let Eddie pick one for me. And Eddie's like, I'm not picking one for you. I grew up with these girls. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And, uh, and, and so it was really, it was a real hate-filled time in my life. And that went on for about a month. But in the meantime, I met Debbie. And, uh, and so then when I brought, Debbie started coming around. Debbie showed up all the time. So I knew that. You know, the other two girls, no one showed up. Debbie showed up, did my taxes, started hanging out with me and stuff. And I'm like, Debbie wins. So I went to the two, so I went to the two girls and I said, hey. And, and, and it was weird because Debbie was so small. And uh, so I remember my niece, Melissa, you know, everybody just expected that I was going to go out with some tall or something like that. Because I was sick of dating and stuff. It was time. You know, you reach a point where it's time, you know, and, and it was time in my life. So I uh, uh, actually what happened was Debbie started hanging around. First time Debbie came to my house was to help me do taxes. And my niece, I was with my parents at the time, and my niece answered the door and she said, she come running upstairs and said, Douglas, there's someone here to see you. And she's real small. She's almost as small as me. And at this point, she's like Emmy's age, you know, it's just like, Douglas, she's too small for you. Uncle Douglas, I'm telling you right now. She's too small for you. You can fit her in your pocket. You do not need to go out with her. She's too small. And you got those two girls you've been talking. I mean, Melissa was working, you know? And, uh, but anyway, Melissa loves Debbie and it all worked out. But so I went to those, just to give you a follow-up, an epilogue of the two girls. They hated me for a really long time. But the way I got through that is I fixed one of them up with a friend of mine. And, and then, but they, they didn't, they said, you promised you were going to go out with one of us. And, and see, and Gene is like, I told you. Why did you trust him? And, but anyway, so Debbie and I had all worked out. Here's the important part. And so we got married 10 months later uh, in 1983, October 8th. And that's another sermon, another story, everything that happened with the wedding. But, but God had us come together, and we searched. I mean, folks, you're looking at people that went to church. We went to churches. Uh, we, we didn't go to church all the time, but we were really looking on October, on December 24th, 1983. Six, and we had been married at that time for three years. I went to. Uh, I told Debbie. I woke up and I said, Debbie, I feel like there's something missing in my life. I feel like I don't know God. It's our actual conversation, and Debbie got concerned. You know, we were, and usually, you know, uh, we were real serious about the things of God, looking for God, uh, trying to understand how God fit into our life. So we were real serious about that, even back then. And she told me, well, you got to go talk to the man of God. So I walked down to St. James Church there in Danielson, Connecticut. And I 
I knocked on the door to rectory, and I think the lady had kept the schedule or whatever. The rectories are pretty big things in some Catholic churches. And, and she came down and she asked me if I knew what day it was. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'm all grown up. I'm the army recruiter here in town. And uh, I said, you know, I, I know it's December 24th. I'm home. I'm hanging out. With, and I made mission, praise God. Make mission, go fishing. So the rule was at Christmas time, you make mission by December 7th and just go home. You know, so that's what I did. And so we did that in the Army all the time. If you made mission as an Army recruiter, it was the best job in the United States of America. So if you were the best recruiter, like I'd pull in, I had a radar detector, I had a stereo installed in my government car, I had special light put in, I had windows tinted and stuff. This guy not making mission pulls up next to me with a radar detector and they wrote him up. <laughs> they get ready to give him an Article 15. He's like, look at Doug's car. And they're like, shut up, he makes mission. So it was kind of cool back then. But anyway, I go to church. And, uh, and nobody would talk to me. They were going to make me an appointment. And then we searched and we searched. Fast forward, we end up in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas on recruiting duty and in charge of people. And Little Rock is a strange place to be and uh, when you're from Connecticut and stuff. And, and I remember this is a true story. So we had this hot red. So we were like the people. You know, we were like the skinny workout people, looked real good, hung out, had the T-top car. Lived in the city, you know, in the nice houses all the time. I mean, we, we had a pretty good life going on. And uh, I remember Debbie and I went out driving. You didn't have GPSs. You didn't have cell phones. You didn't have anything. And I pulled in this gas station. And this is the story I'll always tell people about Little Rock. We're about 40 miles outside of town. And we got lost. We just couldn't find the highway. We were looking for things that looked. It was getting dark. I had the T-tops off. I think they were at home. And I was like, you know, I'm ready to go home. And so I get to this gas station. I even was going to buy a candy bar or something. These two guys were having a conversation at the counter. And this is the honest truth of this conversation. And uh, the guy says to this one guy, he says, I'm so sad to hear about Bo. He's the best dog you ever had. And how'd he go? And he said, well, he stuck his head off the side of a truck. And I don't know whether he hit a sign or another car. Anyway, the dog was dead. And this conversation ensued. It just continued on about Bo. And, you know, he was a good bloodline, and there's other people who know Bo, who other dogs like Bo. And, and, I mean, it was really a long time, or to me anyway, with my patience. So I finally got, so I finally, I'm standing at the counter, and I, I'm even going to buy a candy bar. And I said, excuse me, can you tell me how to get back to Little Rock? And I'll never forget what that guy said to me. He said, he said Yankee, get out there in that pretty little car with your pretty little wife and get out of here before we end it for you or something like that. I ran out to the car. I, got, I left the candy bar in there on the counter, and we were lost for another couple hours. And uh, we, we finally got home. But anyway, we went to church that next day, and we went to this church. And so this one church we go to, and it was an independent Baptist church. And a guy from church took us there, and we're all sitting in the room, and they called on us from the pulpit and said, where were you guys saved? When did you guys get saved and stuff? And Debbie and I are like, what are they talking about? And it really freaked us out. We never went back. Remember he preached on the elephant bones that Michael Jackson bought? And that was really freaking me out that he was preaching. Yeah, they called on us. Stand up. Give us your salvation experience and stuff like that. And I'm like, I was baptized at St. Patrick's in Plainfield, you know. I mean, what do you say at that point? So we bailed. And then we went to, then Debbie's best friend, this girl, Barbara Punzelon. So my father and I have this, had this uh, love-hate relationship. He was always bailing on us, yelling at us. He was really a freak. And anyway, and he got saved at the end of his life, thank God. Uh, uh, 
but but dad showed up with his fiance or something. I was his best man four times, I think. But he showed up and, and they were cool. I mean, they slept in separate bedrooms and I was like, so she's out in the living room and I'm like, her name was Cordia. And yeah, and I'm like, Cordia, listen, you know, this guy's an idiot, man. You gotta, don't marry him, man. Please, every time, I, I've been his best man. It, it usually don't last a week or two before you say, oh man, I can't believe I married this idiot. I said, the best thing you can do is just go home. I said, I'll take you to the airport or I'll buy you a ticket or I'll get you a bus ticket. Anyway, so Barbara Punzelon comes over because Barbara and Dave Punzelon were our best friends. My buddy Putu on Facebook. Now, what does he call himself? I don't know, but he's on Facebook. Anyway, Dave Punzelon, he, he's got like a fifth degree black belt in karate. Everybody should have one person like that somewhere in their army career. We were going TDY all over the country and he was my assistant. And we were in American Samoa, he beat up like three or four people. I didn't have to do anything. And I thought, I told him, I said, Dave, we should have a TV show, man. I mean, you're a fifth degree black belt. And he got stationed in Korea, no, Taekwondo. He could pick up his whole body, spin around. I, I wish I could remember his name. It's, what's his name? You guys got to look at this guy. The bit. Anyway, he still to this day, he shaves his head down about that far. He gets up and does his special kung fu push-ups and stuff like that. So anyway, Dave's wife, Barbara Punzelon, who died of, sadly, of AIDS. Her son had a blood thing and got a blood transfusion. She stuck herself with a needle and they both got AIDS. Wonderful lady. She said, I'm a born-again Christian. you got to come to church with us. So I said, Dad, let's go to church with Bobby. And I figured, you know, this would be a good thing we could gel. I'm thinking Catholic church. This was going through my mind. And my dad, he was real proud of himself. He went three months without smoking. He quit smoking. And, and you know, and he was telling me how cool he was and how good of a guy he was. So we go to our church and we get there and there's like 10 drum sets. And the opening hymn is Stairway to Heaven, you know, and from Led Zeppelin. And I mean, they're slamming up there and there's music all around and there's crazy things going on. And this guy in front of me has a heart attack. He just slams off the floor. And I mean, I scream, Maddox! And I jump over, you know, I jump over the pew and I hop on top of this guy and I'm pounding him in the chest and slapping him because I got a pulse and I can feel, feel air coming out of his nose and stuff. And I'm like, this guy's got something stuck in his throat. You know, so I'm digging in his throat and I'm punching his chest and slapping him and stuff. And the guy comes to it and says, I'm just slain in the spirit. And folks, if you've never been to a church where people do weird stuff like that, that will freak you out. And so I, I turn around to tell my father we're in trouble, you know. And, and, Bobby's, and Bobby's Debbie sucks. And Bobby, she was one of our best friends. Man. And she's like, Doug, we got we to gotta go. And, and we got to go. They want us to leave. And so I said, I said, I said, I've got to fight. And, and the guy was acting like he was really hurt. I think he was just a big baby, you know. He was like, oh, man, he hurt my ribs. And he's walking around. He was. He was walking around like this. And so I can't find my father anywhere. So Bobby and I are out front, and I said, I can't leave without my father. We got his fiance at the house, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is freaking me out. And we got out there, and I look over, and my father's coming out of 7-Eleven across the street. His hands are shaking. He's, he's smoking a cigarette. I said, Dad, you told me you went three months without smoking. I was so proud of you. He said, son, he says, I don't know God. He said, I don't. But he said, that wasn't God in there. He said, that wasn't. And so we got in the car. So anyway, then we, more churches. We kept on going to churches. And, and folks, there's so much religion out there. And there's so much craziness out there. And I remember my father had a chance of being saved that day. And so did I. 
you know, we had a chance. We probably would have got saved that day if somebody would have shared the gospel with us. And we ended up at churches all over. To make a long story short, I ended up at the Sergeant Majors Academy. Um, and, and it was a cool place for me to be. And uh, because it means you get promoted. And, you know, I was real young. Everything was happening in the way because I was 17. So when you come in, so I went in the Army, literally went to training within a week of my 17th birthday. And that set the stage for being able to be promoted young and stuff like that throughout my career. Because a lot of people come in at 18 or 19 or 20. And uh, so I was down there. We were having a really good time. And there was a guy in my class who was different, an African-American gentleman. His name was Willie Vernon Watson. And he was the neatest guy. And Willie, everybody was hating each other and beating on each other. You'd go in at 5, 5.30 in the morning. You'd run 10 miles through the desert and do crazy things. And then you'd go to the gym and work out. You'd shower. You'd go to class by 9. You'd be there at 5 o'clock. You stay up all night till about one in the morning doing homework, research papers, studying and stuff like that. And you'd live that day all over again. It was like Groundhog Day over and over and over again. And people are quitting and people are failing out. And you're just trying to do everything. And people are fighting this contention. And we were in a small, there were 466 people that started a class. And we had 17 people in this small group. And Willie was one of them. And these two guys got in a fist fight one day, fighting over whose information was from the library because you, you would fill out back then, you didn't have a computer. So when you do a research paper, you'd fill out three by five cards and you'd, you, you started with a thesis statement. You guys remember, then you had to go that and they were fighting over that. And these two guys literally went fish to cuff and I jumped in between them and broke them up and made them sit down. And I looked over and Willie was just being Willie, just happy, having a good day. Everybody was miserable. And I looked over at Willie on October 14th, 1993. And I'll never forget this. I looked over at Willie and I said, Willie, why are you so happy? We're all hating each other, and you're always having a good time. You're always happy. There's all these good things going on in your life. Why is that? And I'll never forget what Willie said to me. Willie said, because if I died right now, Doug, I'd know for sure I was going to heaven. He says, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I can't be anything but happy. And I remember that. And I don't remember exactly the words. I don't want to get them wrong, but he did say because he knew for sure he was going to heaven. And I literally went home on October 14th, 1993, and I didn't know what to do because Debbie was the most religious person I knew at that point because Debbie was still going to Catholic church. She went to the, you could kind of go to this drive-in church. And I, she said she went in, but there was churches you could, you could just stay in your car, you know. Even back then, it was drive-through churches, man. But Debbie went in and did the blessings. It went, up a Anyway, I, I used to practice it when I was an altar boy. Up I get up there with the priest, just in case we had to do emergency services. But I found the key to the wine room, and I got fired. And I was getting really good at some of that stuff. I'd walk, and I'd be hammered. You know, I'd be going up and down the aisle, blessing, you know, with the other altar boys. And they loved me until they realized I'd been drinking all the wine. My mother's like, she says, your shyness is going away, honey. And I, I know. Isn't it great? But anyway, I got fired from that. So here we are, and Willie says, so I go home to Debbie, the most religious person I know. And I said, Debbie, I did. I was good at that. And I used to carry that big cross and swing it around. And the number one job goes to the guy with the, that's the best altar boy job you get right there is the big cross. Because you go next to the priest, and sometimes they even let you put things on people's tongues, you know, when they come up and you put the dots on their tongue. And what I do is I lick my thumb and get a dot for it and put it on their tongue. And I used to do, yeah, I used to do some pretty bad stuff. Because they'd be up there with their eyes closed. So I'd do something. Or I'd move it around inside on their inside. Because I was hammered, you know. I was just a kid. But, but anyway, uh, so I go home to Debbie. And I said, Debbie, you never did that when you were Catholic? I used to do those kind of things. And 
they'd make, I'd, I'd make holy water because you'd have to go get the priest to bless it. I'd fill it up with water. And I'd bless it myself. <laughs> you know, people would be coming and grabbing it. But anyway, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you that. But uh, <clears throat> I went home and said, Debbie, Willie's a Jesus freak. I think that was my exact words. Because I didn't know what to do. So I hit Debbie with these kind of things. I have a predicament like this every day, really. But this was a bad one, you know. And I'm like, Willie's a Jesus freak. And he's talking about knowing Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And he's a guy, he's the only guy in the class who's not out drinking, who's not wanting to beat people up. He's the only guy, and I wasn't. I mean, I never drank. I, I never, by the grace of God, uh, I never strayed uh, anything weird that a lot of those guys was doing. But Willie was happy. And uh, so I told Debbie, and Debbie's like, you know, we can't, we can't hang out with him. You know, oh, remember what the priest said, be careful. Listen, I don't remember exactly what it was. The next morning, we had a PT test, and, uh, and, and it's as many push-ups as you can with two minutes without stopping, as many sit-ups as you can with two minutes without stopping, you have 10 minutes between events, and then we had to walk down and do a run. So we start right away with push-ups, and everybody gets in line, and what they do is everybody who's going to do more than 100 push-ups, they put you at the front of the line. Gives you a little more recovery time, and so I was going to do more than 100 push-ups, and you get two graders. And so I got up there, and you get a grader on both sides because you're, once you get over 100, you're competing with different awards and stuff like that. So they really tried to help you out, especially at the Sergeant Majors Academy. I did 104, 105, and you get up, and you're all pumped up. There was a guy at 130-something or something. You know, I was blown away, but it still felt good to break 100. And, but anyway, someone ran up to me and said, did you hear about Willie? Because Willie, was, I think, was going to do a lot of push-ups too. And I said, no, what happened to Willie? And they said, Willie failed his... PT test. He failed his push-ups. And I said, no, he didn't. We're at the Sergeant Major Academy. Nobody fails the PT test at the Sergeant Major Academy. They said, I'm telling you, he couldn't do his push-ups. And, and so I immediately, I'm looking around for Willie, you know. And uh, so finally I do my sit-ups, and, and, and then we go to do the run. And, and the run was from like here to the end of the road in the desert. You know, it's when the sit-ups are done. Get down the road, you'll see the ambulance and everything. <clears throat> That's the starting point. And we knew the track. It was a, a, a one-mile track that we went around twice. It was out in the desert. It was a nice track. We were a mile above sea level. Everybody was freaking out about it. And um, so we went out there to do the run. And as we walked there, I walked next to Willie. And I said, Willie, I said, listen, don't worry about it. I'll tell them they graded you unfairly, and I'll get you another test. And he said, Christians don't lie. Another thing that caught me, and I'm ashamed to say That's what he said to me. Christians don't lie. He said, Doug, I just don't feel good. It's not a great day. So I passed my setup. When we went down to do the two-mile run in the Army, when you have a big group, and there was about 100, they broke us into five groups for the PT test. And actually, I don't even think there was 100 because we were in the MFT, so uh, we were going to grade the PT test for everybody else. So they, you line up by where you finish your run. You know, if your last run was uh, you know, less than 10 minutes, you go to the very front. And we had a guy who did 904, 42-year-old man, did nine minutes and four seconds, two miles. David Bedford, Dave Bedford. Uh, and... And then we had a few people that were like 10. I mean, people run that fast. We had a guy who held the four-minute record at West Point for, uh, we had an officer I was stationed with one time that did, did he did four minutes and uh, like 12 or 15 seconds at West Point, a guy I was stationed with later on. So people ran really fast out there. But anyway, I got to my point, which was about uh, <clears throat> the 12-minute, 13-minute crew, and we took off running. I didn't really think about it. Ran the two miles, and I had such a good run that I let a car pull in front of me. You know, a car was coming with the signal I got, and I was coming down the track, and I was like a minute ahead of my time. 
in the finish line are like right where the doors are. And I'm like going like this to the car. And they're screaming at me from the finish line. You're letting the army down. You know, you know, the knucklehead skip. But anyway, so I ran to the finish line and you come back and you cheer people on. And, and for a minute, I forgot about Willie. And then I went and I got a big thing of water and I got Willie a big thing of water. And Willie crossed the finish line slow, 16, something, 17 minutes, which still was passing for him. And I got him his water and we're walking back and I'm saying, Willie, I maxed the PT test because I was really excited. I was worried about the sit-ups. I was worried about the run. And you want to get 100 points, so you want to do what they expect you as a minimum plus 40 extra. And I said, you know, I maxed the PT test. I get another patch, get to wear it for another six months. And because uh, <clears throat> you get to sew it on your shirt that says you're a master something. I don't even remember. And, uh, uh, and so anyway, Willie came in. I gave him a glass of water. We started walking back. I said, we got to get back to the gym. I want to get the shower while it's at least lukewarm. And we got to get over to the building. And I was like, Willie, it's going to be all right. And we started walking. And, and we only went maybe 100 yards or so. And Willie tripped. And he went down. I remember his body hitting the ground. It was just kind of awkward. So I went over and I just kicked him. You know, I nudged him. I said, Willie, get up. We got to go back to the gym. Get up, Willie. Get up. And Willie didn't move. And so quickly, you know, something's amiss. And so I flipped Willie over, and, and sadly, this is my PTSD statement. I, when I flipped Willie over, he had a cut on his lip, but his blood was just kind of sitting there, you know, and he had sand on his eyeballs. And so his eyes had never closed, so I knew something was really wrong, and I screamed medic. And, you know, there was an ambulance. They didn't have paramedics, but they, they had people. They had medic in the area with a bag and stuff like that, and they called the real ambulance and the paramedics, and I started giving Willie mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and CPR by myself. I immediately went into, I tilted his head back, you know, I cleaned out his air passage, and, and here's my best buddy from the Sergeant Majors Academy, and I couldn't get him to breathe. And it's the weirdest feeling um, because, you know, you expect things to work. And, and, and I remember that I, as I was giving him compressions, I went over to give him another breath of life, and I had a little teeny pulse. When I first started, I wasn't getting anything at this point. And you're trying in between the breasts of compressions. You know, I was digging into him and trying to get his, his pulse. I wasn't getting anything. This guy ran up, a friend of mine, uh, Ted Geiser, and said, Doug, remember, I'm a nurse. I'll do the compressions. I'll do the counting. You're all full of blood. And I even forgot there was blood there. You know, all you're trying to do is save somebody. And so I was wrapping my lips around him. And as hard as I could, you know, you're blowing his lungs, lift his chest up. And then I let up and hit breathe out and you'd get excited, but all it was was your ear. And, and so finally the paramedics, the ambulance, it was probably pretty quick or the medic showed up and they pushed me out of the way. And by this point I had blood all over me. And to make a long story short, Willie had passed away. But I remember having blood all over my face, blood all over my shirt and the ambulance pulls up and there's a doctor there and all this stuff and, and they're, they're giving Willie shots and they had the, uh, you know, the machine there to, um, press people and make your heart beat, whatever they call that, where they shock you. What is it? Yeah. And, I, and they did it like three times and they stopped. And the doctor stopped and they, they gave him some epi and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm like, don't stop. And I mean, I'm in the doctor's face out there. And the doctor's like, okay, Sergeant Major. And, you know, you really didn't know what rank it was. We were just all in the Sergeant Major's Academy off when we all wore Sergeant Major's. Uh, I don't remember what it was. Wore something on a uniform that says Sergeant Major's Academy on it. And, uh, I remember that I saw the ambulance. I saw him still trying to give Willie CPR and I saw the ambulance driving away and you could see right through the window and they all sat down. And I said, man, Willie's dead. The only person I knew my entire life 
that knew for sure he was going to heaven. The only person ever in my entire life. And, and, and well, he was dead. And then and out of nowhere, and the strange things that happen when those things happen, God puts angels in, in your way when you go through crazy stuff or in your place. And a car pulled up. It was a Ford Granada, of all things. And I remember my buddy Glenn Geiger, Virgil Geiger. I didn't know him very well. His name was Virgil, but he went by Glenn. <clears throat> and uh, because when he was young, that song, Virgil Payne, was my name. And I worked with it. Yeah, he hated it. So he used the name Glenn because that was his grandfather's name. But anyway, so Glenn pulled up. And he said, Doug, take your T-shirt off. We're about the same size. And I took my T-shirt off, and he took his off. He said, I'm going home. I have a clean one at home. And he gave me his T-shirt. So I didn't have blood all over my T-shirt. just had it on my face. So I was trying to wipe it off. And Glenn prayed for me. Put his arm on my shoulder. No one had ever specifically prayed for me like that before. And he said, dear God, he said, our friend Willie's with you now. Never forget him saying that. And... Uh, he said, would you use this for your glory? He said, would, right now, would you send angels to be around Willie's family? And he was praying real nice. I'd never heard these things. And, and he said, God, if Doug's not saved, would you save him? And I'm sitting there, and it didn't seem as Jesus freaked to me as it did the day before. It was a matter of life and death. And I remember, so he drives me to the gym. And as soon as I got to the gym, they kicked everybody out of the locker room. They were scrubbing me down with alcohol at the front desk trying to get the blood off my face and stuff to make me more presentable. And, you know, the Army goes right into action for those kind of things. And uh, I called Debbie. I said, hey, can I use the phone? They immediately handed it to me. And I said, Debbie, someone died. It's not me. And I just hung up the phone. I mean, that's what you do. you got to do it as quick as humanly possible. And uh, I said, someone died. I couldn't tell her who it was. We didn't want word getting, you know, in a housing area. I said, someone died and it wasn't me, because usually if someone's going to die or be with somebody who dies or see something terrible, it's going to be Debbie or me. So I wanted to get the word to her real fast. Hey, it's not me, man. And uh, so I hung up the phone and went in the shower room. This Navy SEAL cleared the shower room, and, and they stood behind me with my towel. They helped me. Everybody was real cool. And, and I didn't realize it, but I must have been really upset through this. And so we go over to the, uh, we go over to the building where the Sergeant Major's Academy is, and they have the CID, which is part of the military police. And they're there, and they immediately ask me every question you could ever think of. You know, uh, why did this happen? What did you do? Who was there? Why did, you know, and all this stuff. And then we got a, and then they, they called and said, someone needs to come over and identify the body. And I said, I was just with it. It's Willie. And I, you know, he had his dog tags on. And they said, no. So the commander... Uh, who was a colonel, the only officer in the Sergeant Major Academy was the colonel. It was a Medal of Honor winner from the Vietnam War. Colonel Strahan and I hopped in my pickup truck, and we drove over to the hospital. And uh, we went to the morgue part, and they made me identify Willie's body. And so the colonel said to me, is this Willie? He said, yeah. And I said, what else we got to do, colonel? He said, well, we just got to sign this piece of paper, buddy. He said... Willie's day as a soldier on this side are done. I remember the colonel was trying to comfort me, you know. And, uh, and we signed the paperwork, and people were, you know, alerting Willie's family. And, and just everything. And by the time we got back over, we had a funeral for him. We had a memorial service. They shut down the Sergeant Major's Academy. They shut down the First Sergeant's Academy. They shut down everything. And they, we had this big, huge auditorium. And they had a funeral service. And this chaplain got up and he preached about how sand wears out gravestones. He didn't preach about Willie, God. He was talking about how soon we forget. And, and obviously it was an unsaved chaplain. 
and then the, the service was over, and, and then those of us who were in Willie's base group, there were 16 of us left lined up, and we were next. We already had Willie's. We did have Willie's own helmet. Uh, we didn't have his M16. We, had, we used someone else's, but we had his dog tags and everything. We had it hanging there, and we had our service book. You know, the Army does it that quick. You need to get over it and drive on, you know? And uh, I remember I was sitting there at the end of the service, and so the, the, my leader came over to me, and he said, Doug, I got the chaplain I want you to talk to. And I said, I don't want to talk to the chaplain. He's, he's a knucklehead. He, he preached about gravestones wearing out. And uh, chaplain said, and he said, no, this chaplain knows God. This guy named Kennedy, and uh, lieutenant colonel. And he, he sat down next to me, and he said, he said, Doug, are there any questions I can answer for you? And I said, yeah, why did Willie die and no one else? Isn't that the question always? The whys? And uh, I said, he was the only guy I ever knew, knew for sure he was going to heaven. And he said, Doug, would you know for sure you're going to heaven? And I said, no, nobody could know for sure. So I was contradicting myself. And he read me this verse. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know ye have eternal life. And, and you know, I was thinking about that, and you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And no one had ever said that before. And he gave me my own Bible. First person who ever gave me a Bible. He gave me my own Bible. And he started going through the Bible with me. And he was rabbit earing books. And, you know, the books of the Bible we were looking at and circling verses and telling me you're a sinner. The Bible said there are none righteous, no, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 8, by the way, God provides salvation and security. It's, uh, no man does that. And he went through those things. You're a sinner. There's a price on sin for the wages of sinner's death. Jesus paid that price, but God commended his love toward us. And he explained death to me. I never had anybody, he just explained death to me. He said, Doug, you know why Willie died? And I said, he was sick. You know, his bad heart or whatever. And uh, he said, no, he died because there's sin in this world. And he really was so good with me explaining sin. I remember he got to the point where he said, you can pray to receive Christ right now, Doug, and you too, when you pass away, can go be with Willie. And you get, more importantly, you get to be with God. And I remember I said, I want to do that. What do I got to do? And he was explaining what a prayer should be like. He didn't give me a sample prayer or anything. And I remember when I leaned down, he just started bawling. I can remember his tears bouncing off my head. And, I mean, he was just crying. And uh, he was so glad I was getting saved. And I didn't know what to do with it. So, anyway, God showed up, and I got saved. We hugged each other. He gave me a card and said, this is your pastor, a guy named Bob Stewart. Uh, Hillcrest Baptist Church in El Paso, El Paso, Texas. Now I thought it was for years and someone corrected me. It was Bob Stewart. It was Pastor Stewart. Anyway, so I had his card. And so I get home. And this is the weirdest thing that ever happened. I, I didn't even know what the word reprobate meant. I'd never used it my entire life. But I got home with Debbie and I told Debbie, I'm a born-again Christian. I've accepted the Lord. And I'm calling my pastor or something like that. And I just, you know, and, and we hugged and talked about, you know, Willie's gone and and stuff, you know, there was a few moments we, we weren't hating each other or anything, but Debbie didn't want to listen to me or something. I was like, I just got saved. You need to get saved. Pray right now. You know, I didn't know what to say to her. You know, just pray. And she's like, and so I called the pastor up, and Debbie's pregnant, you know, and uh, so I called the pastor. We got a little boy running around. What? You got saved? You know, and a little dog running around. And so I called the pastor, and he answered the phone. He said, Pastor Stewart. I said, Pastor Stewart, my name is Doug Carriger. And I said, you need to come to my house because I'm living with a reprobate and she needs to get saved. He said, he said, Doug, when did you get saved? I said, what time is it, Pastor? Because I didn't even know what time it was. And he told me, and I said, about three hours ago. And he said, are you the one who got saved over there on base 
and your friend died? And I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm so sorry about that. He said, Brother Doug, we're not going to call Debbie a reprobate anymore, are we? He said, I'm going to come to your house, but he says, we're going to love your wife. He says, we've been saved into something special, not evil, not contentious, not wife-hating. This is what he's telling me on the phone. He said, are you listening to me, Brother Doug? And no one had ever called me Brother Doug before. And I'm like, yes, sir. He said, well, I'm coming over to your house. Do not call your wife a reprobate. Do not call. And it's what he's telling me on the phone. He says, you're going to love your wife. He said, God is the spirit of love. And he's telling me on the phone. He said, now you've got the spirit of love now. So he was explaining to me that I'm no longer this work my way to heaven, do exactly what I'm told, that all of a sudden it's a spirit that's with me. And he's explaining it to me. So I hang up the phone. And so I'm talking to Debbie and Doug, and I'm trying to be cool about it, but I know he's coming. You know, I'm just kind of waiting, thinking to myself, man, Debbie's going to get saved any minute. You know? And so he knocks on the door. He pulls me outside. It's real hot even on that October day. Everybody says, well, it's over 100 degrees, but it's dry. It's not hot. No, it's hot. And so anyway, he pulls me outside. Let's look at your truck. And we prayed for Debbie right there in the driveway. And he was crying. His spirit, he was that guy. You know, you don't build a big, huge church like he did. He was crying and hugging me. And he says, Brother Doug, we're going to love Debbie. He says, boy, we're going to love your wife. He says, you're going to teach your wife what love looks like. He said, if God doesn't save her today, he's going to save her. You know why? And I said, why? He said, we're all going to be praying for her and loving her. And you're going to be an example for her. And he said, I'm going to be the best pastor I can to both of you, I promise. You know, and he's standing out there. And I mean, this guy had a cowboy hat about this big. And he was so serious. You know, he had a hat about that big. And, and uh, he had his chaplain badge, you know, from the police department. And I'm like, all right, Pastor. He said, well, let's go in here, brother. And we prayed again. We prayed about three times. He went in the house, sat down with Debbie. He introduced himself. And he told us about his marriage, told us about his kids. And then he started hitting Debbie up. What do you believe? You know, what's going on with you, Debbie? And, Tell me about your life. And he really cared. You know, for the next 30 minutes to an hour, he sat there and really cared about us. And Debbie went to pray. Debbie said, no, I'm Catholic. And he said, that's okay, Debbie. We want you to come to church anytime you want to come. He didn't get contentious with her, nothing. He just said, we want you to come to church anytime you want to come. No one's going to bother you. Uh, we're a church of love. I remember him saying that. And we love each other. He said, and he said, don't be looking for perfect people because he said, we're messed up. But he said, we all love each other. And he said, you're welcome. We're going to be praying for you. So Debbie... She didn't come for a while. Then I started going. I took Doug, and Debbie's like, I'm going. So Debbie was going to Mass on Saturday night. She started coming to church. and She didn't get saved there in El Paso. But then we moved to Little Rock. So I picked a church in Little Rock, not the one of the elephant bones, but another one. I, did, I drove by the elephant bone guy and said, actually, my pastor, Bob Stewart, gave us a name and address, and we got to the Welcome Center, and they had, a, they had stuff waiting for us. Our new church, your pastor, Bible Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Arkansas. And so we... Uh, we just started, you know, we went there and then Debbie's dad died. Got a call at one o'clock in the morning and then Debbie got saved. And then, but through all that time, and this guy came out, his name's Widow, uh, W-I-D-O, he's a retired army chaplain. And uh, his wife was dying of cancer in the hospital. And we called him at one in the morning. He was the assistant pastor, it was four in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning. And his wife was dying of cancer. He was, he was a chaplain. And he was a pastor. He was assistant pastor or military pastor or whatever at our church. And I called him up, not knowing his wife was dying. I beeped him. And he called me right back. And he said, Brother Doug, what's going on? And I said, Debbie's dad died. And he started crying. And he said, hang on, Brother Doug. And he put his wife, who's dying of cancer, she couldn't even get out of the bed at that point. And he put the phone in between him. And he and his wife prayed for Debbie. 
He said, Brother Doug, can I come over to the house right now the way I'm dressed? He said, I'm wearing jeans and, uh, you know, a Dallas Cowboys shirt. And I even forgave him for wearing a Dallas Cowboys shirt. I said, come on. And he came over to whatever he had on. It was jeans and a sweatshirt by the time he got to our house. And I can remember his wife was there. And I told him, I said, Chaplain Widow, I said, you know, you can come out another time. We can call someone else at the church. He said, no, my wife said she's going to heaven. And I feel responsible for you guys. And he came to our house. And he led Debbie to the Lord. I can remember Doug looking out. Doug was three, and they were talking about being saved. I can remember Doug saying, Daddy, Mommy's getting saved. I ran out, and I looked out the door, and you could see her on her knees in the living room praying to receive Christ. So fast forward ahead. The years went by. We, we got hooked up with good churches, bad churches, weird churches, pain, hurt, great things, wonderful glory. I mean, God's glory, seeing God do things. Everything was great. But I kept on having nightmares and stuff, and that's where we started researching into PTSD. As a God started healing me very quickly in my life and, uh, and the things I trusted in and trusted him. And, and God did that. And, and that's why that's how we all got here. I just decided that's what we were going to do with our lives. And, and then we, we had Bible studies I wrote and somewhere from there in 2014. The book came out. Uh, the first of a couple books came out. And then by 2000, in 2014, we were here at camp. Uh, we had 150 people here at camp. And... Uh, at our very first camp we had here, they had chairs going out that back door over there. They ran it on a, on a radio station. I mean, and, and God just did work. And since then, we've been working with people with PTSD. So that's our story. Thanks so much for being with us today. We pray that God will bless you. And uh, uh, if there's anything we can do for you, make sure you grab a hold of us at the Help for Wounded Spirits Facebook page or on my personal page uh, or fake email address, Doug at WoundedSpirits.com, and we'll do our best to get right back to you. We certainly love you folks and hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. It is very important to all of us at Help for Wounded Spirits that you know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear with a simple salvation message. You can know today. First, you're a sinner, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Second, there's a price on sin, for the wages of sin is death. Third, Jesus paid that price for you, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lastly, you must speak it with your mouth and believe it with your heart, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made known unto salvation. Simply ask the Lord to save you in Jesus' name while believing in your heart, and he will. Please contact us if we can help you in any way. God bless you. Doug and Stephanie, thank you for listening today. We hope this podcast has been a blessing in your life. For helpful resources, more information, or to donate to help this vital ministry, visit us at WoundedSpirits.com.